if you would turn to 1 Corinthians 13. If you've been around church or weddings or anything like that for any amount of time, you've probably heard 1 Corinthians 13. So you probably know what I'm going to talk about, so I'm going to go ahead and just start introducing it while you're turning there. This morning we're talking about the concept, the idea of love. And love is probably, I would, I would say, the most overused and misused word in the entirety of the English language today in my opinion. I could be wrong, but we love things like cheesecake, right? Do you love cheesecake? I love cheesecake. We love things like the Tar Heels, and we love Autumn, and I just love a pumpkin spice latte. That's not me, that's my wife, but we just, we love things, right? When we talk about things, we can just kind of like something, but usually we respond with, I just love it. Do you do that? We use that word love all the time in all kinds of different ways. But when it actually comes down to truly loving people, turning our love from something that's just about things to truly loving people, we can actually start to become kind of uncomfortable. Because you say, you know, maybe for you, you're like, I would tell that person I love them, but I just don't want to think I'm weird, right? And that's just a strange thing because we think that they're going to think that we're weird if we say that, man, I love you. 1 Corinthians 13 is all about love, and we're going to dive into what it means. But let's read it first and see. Starting at verse 1. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but I do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so that I can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not irritable. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is God's inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient word. Let's pray. Father, may we understand these things today. God, may we grasp love as being more than just a strong feeling of like for something. May we understand the reality, the fullness of what it means to love. To love someone else who isn't our spouse but instead is someone within the body of believers that make up our church. Help us understand this with not just our head, but with our heart. Convict us where we need conviction. Encourage us where we need encouragement. And may your Holy Spirit be the one guiding us into all truth this morning. 
Help me to speak your word rightly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, our main idea is that the gift of love is greater than any other gift that God has given to his church. The gift of love is greater than any other gift that God has given to his church. And we're going to unpack that in just a moment. But when it comes to this passage, I want to go back to it and just think about the passage as a whole. Because this is a passage that is often read at a wedding, right? And maybe it was read at your wedding, and you're like, where's he going with this? Um, this passage is read at weddings, and actually the first time I ever heard this read at a, read at a wedding, it wasn't actually a, a wedding I attended in person, but it was from a little movie by a guy named, based off a book by a guy named Nicholas Sparks called A Walk to Remember. And some of you ladies know, and some of you men regretfully know, right? You've, you've watched that movie, and you've heard, you remember that part. I remember hearing it, and I, was, I looked it up. By, by the sheer providence of God, my wife wanted to watch this movie yesterday for some reason. I said the providence of God. And I'm watching it, and I'm, I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm kind of taking it in. And that part comes up, and I said, I totally forgot about that. But I remember the first time I heard this passage ever was in that wedding scene in that movie. And I thought, man, that is profound. And this is like 2002 is when the movie came out. And so this is kind of before our instinct was to, to whip out your phone and Google something, right? And I didn't know where it was, so I said, I didn't know. And I, I remember sitting there, and I was like, that's really profound. Like, that's good stuff. And so um, I sat there, and I'd listen to it, and I'd press play, and I'd write it down, and then I'd rewind it to get to that part and write it down, not really realizing that I could just Google it and find where it is in the Bible, because I didn't know. But I thought, wow, that is profound. What a good passage of Scripture. It's good that we read this at weddings, because certainly the love that happens between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife, is, should be described this way, right? It should be described as patient, kind, um, not envying, not boastful, all those things. But I think whenever we hear it in that one context all the time, that actually leads us to having some confusion about the nature of this love. Because, see, the context of this passage is not, this isn't a wedding that Paul is talking about here. He's speaking to a church. He's telling the Corinthian church, this is what true love really is. And he's telling them that because really, at the end of the day, they struggled with it, and they stunk at it. They had a hard time. See, if you go through the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll see that there's this rivalry at the beginning, and there are factions within the church who are trying to figure out who is the best teacher, right? Who, who do we like? Do we like Paul, or maybe Apollos, or maybe Cephas? And there's divisions over that. There's an arrogance, he says, that the entire church has in chapter 5, verse 2. And that's the chapter talking about the fact that this man is in this heinous sexual sin, and they're not doing anything to deal with it, to put him under discipline. And you know what he says to them because they won't put him under discipline? He says, you are arrogant. Because you think that you can just keep on turning a blind eye to this thing and acting like it's not happening. You're arrogant. You're not actually loving this man, and you're not loving the church. They were suing one another, to which he says Christians should not have to sue one another. There should be enough uh, wisdom and love coming from you that you can handle your disputes with one another within the church. They had disputes about food that was sacrificed to idols, and some folks thought it was okay to, to eat food that had been sacrificed to idols and was now being sold in the marketplace, and others who their conscience wouldn't allow them to do it. But the group that said, yeah, that's okay to do, just did it anyways in the sight of the people who struggled with it and said, you know what, my Christian liberty, I can do whatever I want. It doesn't matter if it offends you or hurts your feelings or, or makes you confused or, or grieves you or whatever. I'll do whatever I want to do. 
They weren't even considerate of every member of the congregation when they ate the Lord's Supper. See, when they would go and eat the Lord's Supper, it said that they would have more what's called a love feast. It wasn't during a service, but it was actually a meal that they would have together. And so it's a little different for us. But imagine if the Lord's Supper wasn't so late in our service, and it was at the very beginning, and we all came in together, and you were running late, and we were like, well, just forget about so-and-so. They can take it next time. And they go on and ate without them. And then finally, there's an arrogance that they seem to have about spiritual gifts. See, they were these sign gifts, and they were really proud to have these sign gifts, these gifts of speaking in tongues that were not their own, right? And we see that in the book of Acts at the day of Pentecost, where God gave them the ability to speak in tongues that weren't their own. He gave them the ability to prophesy and say, thus says the Lord. They had knowledge, had all these things, and they thought, we're doing pretty good as a church as long as we have this thing, right? As long as we have these spiritual gifts, all is well. But Paul says, oh no, you see, you're struggling to love one another. You're arrogant because you think that because we have these spiritual gifts, because somebody can get up and give a prophecy, someone can get up and speak in another tongue, that I'm pleased. And God says no. Church, my question for us this morning is this. What is our, as a church, what is our, as long as we have blank, we're okay. As long as we have this nice building, we're okay. As long as we have enough money coming in every Sunday, we're okay. Right? As long as we have enough vehicles, as long as people in the community think well enough of us, as long as we have whatever it is, Fill in the blank. As long as we're hitting 200 people average every Sunday, we're okay. What is it for the church and, and, and individual Christian? What is it for you? You say, well, as long as I'm reading my Bible every day, I'm okay. As long as I make it to church three out of four Sundays a month, I'm okay. What is it for you? See, Paul says, and this is our first point, and we see it in verses 1 through 3, that spiritual gifts are good. God's gifts, whatever they are, are good. He talks about tongues here, and he says, if you have these tongues, this ability to speak in a language that's not your own by the power of the Holy Spirit, but you don't have love, and we've already shown this now uh, earlier in the kids' message, then you're like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You think you're getting something done, you think you're sharing the gospel, but if you're doing it out of a place of pride, it's just like hitting a cymbal. It's like hitting a gong. It's getting nothing accomplished. No one can hear you over your lack of love. He says, if you think you can prophesy, if you can get up and tell people, thus says the Lord, if you think you have knowledge and all these things, but you have not love, he says, you are nothing. The point is, you think because you can do these things that you're just, you're great. You're awesome. Look how good I am. He says, you're not good. You're nothing. And then he says, if I give away everything that I have, all of my possessions, and I even give my body over, and I say, I'm going to die for the Lord, but you don't have love for other people, you haven't gained a thing. Because see, there is this principle and this idea that for us, whenever we are giving away what we have in this world, we are storing up treasure in heaven. He says, you're not going to gain anything if you're not having love for one another. This Corinthian church struggled with how great it thought it was. And Paul's response to them a number of times is, and we see it in 5.2 and a number, a number of other places, he says, but you are arrogant. Because you do all these things, but you don't have love. All of the gifts that God had given them, 
They didn't realize it was for the church and for the good of building up the body, but they thought it was for the individuals within it. They thought it would lead to their prestige, their recognition, their standing in the community, but instead it didn't lead to anything. He said, you are nothing. So here's what I want us to understand. Spiritual gifts are good. What other kinds of gifts from God are good, but love is better. Verses 4 through the beginning of 8 tell, tell us this. Love is better. He's going to explain right here exactly what love is, since there was a confusion. They didn't really understand what love was. And here's the thing about this love. This is a love that is rooted in the gospel. This is the sacrificial act of Jesus on the cross for your sins and for my sins, made real in what he is describing here. This isn't someone's opinion of what love maybe is. This isn't his description of all the mushy-gushy feelings that a man and his wife feel. These things should be part of what a man and his wife feel, um, but it's not all of it. What we see modeled here in verses 4 through the beginning of 8 are attributes of the kind of love that is self-sacrificial, and the kind of love that is self-sacrificial was ultimately modeled in Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, say this. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation in love, any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourself. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. He goes on to talk about us adopting the same attitude of Christ. Though Christ was God, he decided to lower himself, to take on flesh, so that he could sacrifice himself on the cross for you and for me. Because Christ did that, it leads us to saying, I'm willing to make you more important than me. And because Christ has done that for us, church, that should be what we're able to do. Because we see, when we look to the cross and we say, Jesus, you have saved me, every time we look at the cross, we should be able to see God whose love is patient, kind, doesn't envy, isn't boastful. I want to take a few moments and walk through these. I want you to hear these things. And I want you to consider for a moment whether the gospel has changed your outlook on other people to conform to this. And I hope it has. There are times for me where this is convicting, not times every time. Every time I read this, it's convicting because this is not the reality all the time for me. I may be patient today, but I'm not kind, right? I may not be self-seeking fully. I may not be irritable, but maybe I'm a little bit arrogant and boastful because I think I'm doing so good. Let's walk through these and see. Love is patient. You understand that love is patient. God puts up with your nonsense day in and day out. Does he have a right to not be patient with you because like, you just keep on doing the same thing over and over again? Yes, he has a right to do that. And he puts up with you anyway because he's good. He's patient waiting on you to come to him for the first time. He's patient on you waiting on you to mature into Christ's likeness. He's patient. And for us, someone comes into the church and they maybe get saved and, and they don't figure out how to do everything that we do and say everything and use, use the Christianese that we use and all this stuff. And if they don't do it within the first month, we're like, 
I don't know when they're going to get their self together. It's easy to think that, isn't it? Or maybe they've been doing it for a few years. You're like, when they're going to get themselves together? He's patient. But he's kind. The idea here is gentle, sympathetic, not harsh, but wanting the best for someone. See, it's easy to not be kind. Amen? It's easy whenever someone is wrong to you to be wrong to them. And God will look at us and say, well, too bad, so sad, off to hell with you. But he doesn't. He's kind. It doesn't envy. When someone is blessed better than you, to be like Christ is to not mind it. Because Christ could have even had an envious attitude there on the cross and envied those who were not dying, not holding the weight of the world on their shoulders, the sin of the world there on the cross. But he took it. It's not boastful. See, Jesus, though he is God, he is one member of the Godhead, the Trinity. Without getting into all of the the theological uh, stuff about that this morning, he was concerned as one who is fully God, though though he's fully God, he's one person, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He was concerned about the glory of the Father. He wasn't aiming to boast for himself, but he wanted the Father to be glorified in it. Love isn't arrogant. It's not puffed up. It's not worried about how great it looks. And we see that because Jesus was a servant. Jesus was willing to talk to the Samaritan woman and have people look at him and say, what kind of man is this that would talk to this, not only a woman, but a Samaritan woman? He was the one who got down and washed the nasty, disgusting feet of his disciples. He wasn't arrogant. He wasn't puffed up. He was a servant. Love isn't rude. It's not mean and nasty. It doesn't respond in that way, and Christ never has. It's not self-seeking, which cares only about our own good. And we saw that in Philippians 2. Jesus, if he were self-seeking, would have said, I'm not going to go to the cross because that's not good for me. He said, but I want to do what's good for my people, to draw them to myself, to give them a hope. It isn't irritable. Christ did not have a, a sinful temper. At one point, he becomes righteously angry and is over, overturning tables in the temple where people are, are buying and selling goods wrongly. But even then, he has a righteous anger, not a wrong temper. It keeps no record of wrong. Love keeps no record of wrong. That's the whole point of the cross, right? Where there is a record of wrong for us, Christ takes it and he cancels it with his death and he gives us his perfect record of righteousness. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness. We're not glad when others sin or when the results of sin happen. It's easy for us whenever someone has done us wrong and they finally get their consequences to look at them and say, <laughs> they had it coming. Here's the thing. That's rejoicing in unrighteousness. It is. It's rejoicing in their unrighteousness leading to their consequences. And Christ never does it. Instead, it rejoices in the truth. Christ cared about the truth and we should too. Listen, please understand, there are so many times where for us, we put love and truth at odds with one another. And we act as though if we're going to love people, then we have to be okay with untruth happening. Here's what I mean. There are folks who don't believe the truth about God, who have taken in all kinds of false teaching and false doctrine. And we say, for me to be loving, I can't, I can't ever confront that in them. That's wrong. In a passage about love, Paul says love rejoices in the truth. He does not pit them against one another. 
we act as though it's loving to kind of brush things under the rug and say, we're not going to deal with that, we're not going to talk about it. It never happened. That's unloving. Because if there's someone who's a victim of that thing, they receive no justice. It's unloving because if, if there's a person who is sinning in that way and they need to be confronted with their sins so that they can repent, we're not giving them the chance to do that. Love rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. Do you understand that Christ bore your sin on the cross? It was a burden that he bore. Every sin. And for us, we won't bear a burden with a person if it inconvenience us, inconveniences us. We won't bear the burden of helping them do something they need to do. We won't bear the burden of praying with them. We won't bear the burden of praying for them when they're in the wrong. We won't bear the burden of anything for so many people. Love believes all things. Church, if there's one thing that whenever I hear things happening in this church that grieve me and I believe grieves the Holy Spirit, it's this, that we do not believe all things. But as soon as a piece of gossip, a rumor comes about, we believe it instead of all things. And here's what he says when he believes, says believe all things. To believe all things it means I believe the best thing about you in that situation. Okay? Believing all things does not believe, mean that I believe every single thing that I ever hear in my life. If I hear that, Le, you know, Brother Leroy, we don't have a Brother Leroy. If I hear that Brother Leroy, um, and he comes to me and he says, Brother, I was abducted by aliens. Believing all things does not mean I'm like, no. Okay, that's all that means, okay? Believing all things mean, means that whenever a situation arises, I believe the best about someone until I can find out what the truth is, which is two, two attributes ago, right? Believing all things. For us, we want to believe the worst about someone instead of the best about them. Love hopes all things. It hopes that the best thing is actually the reality. Love hopes that we're actually going to be able to reconcile instead of stewing in our frustrations at one another. Because Christ went to the cross with the hope of people coming to him. And finally, love endures all things. It endures all things. Church, if we are going to exist, if we want to make it as a church, we have to actually endure things with one another and for one another. I want to be honest. If you think that you don't do dumb stuff that God has to endure, then you've missed it. Like you, don't, you don't understand it at all. Because you do dumb stuff all the time, and God's just like, okay, here they go. And he's enduring it. And he has the ability to endure it, and he will endure it, and we're glad for that. But our response from that is that we should endure all things with others. We endure when people are doing dumb stuff. We endure when people do things we don't like. We endure whenever people are choosing sin over God and we endure waiting for them patiently and we endure willing to welcome them back when they repent. Finally, verse 8, love never ends. All these things happen because love is eternal. Here's why all this love is so important. He, he, he does this where he tells us all these things that love, I didn't count them up, but how, probably a dozen or more things that love is. And he says, love is so important. I have to tell you exactly what love is because if anything is going to last, it is love. The love that you and I share between one another as believers is eternal. It's different. Even the romantic, physical love between a man and a woman does not continue into eternity because Jesus says that one day, whenever we are in eternity on the new heavens and new earth, we are neither married nor given in marriage. 
that relationship changes. Will you still love your spouse? Yes. Is it the same kind of love as it was before? No. But this agape love, which is the love that's underlying here, every time it says love, it's talking about an agape love, this God-defined love, is the only thing that makes it into eternity. Because then he explains that here. Prophecies? One day someone's going to quit prophesying. Tongues, they're going to cease. And a lot of these things, depending on your view, have ceased. The prophetic word that says, Thus saith the, the Lord, in a way that is authoritative in Scripture, has ceased. Tongues, as a normal means of sharing the gospel, for the most part, has, once again, it depends on your view. We won't get into all that today. That's a, that's a big thing to unpack. But it has ceased. And even if you think it hasn't ceased, it will cease. Knowledge, this gaining of knowledge where it says there is something to be learned that I don't know yet, it's going to come to an end one day. Because right now, he says, in verse 9, we know in part, right? Prophecy that happens, it happens in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. I love reading about God and theology. I just love it. Like, it, 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 what's get me, it's what gets me going. It's, I'm a pastor. It's supposed to be that way, I think, right? One day, on the new heavens and new earth, I will not need that library that I've invested so much time and money into. I won't, because all that knowledge that I hope to gain from it will have been revealed fully and finally through Christ. I won't know it any. I won't need to be gaining knowledge anymore because He will give me that knowledge. He says all these things we know in part, we prophesy in part, we 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 share the gospel through tongues in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial things are going to pass away. He goes on to give some examples. I was a, I was a child. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. One day, everything changes. For now, we see only in a reflection as in a mirror. Right? Whenever we think on the things of God, whenever we look into the things of God, we see as we're looking in a mirror dimly, some translations say. It's like a reflection, it's dimly. But one day we're going to see Jesus and we're going to know him face to face. Now we know in part, but one day we're going to know fully, even as we are now fully known. See, all these things are partial. He uses these three pictures of a child who becomes a man, of a mirror who the image becomes face to face instead of in a mirror, and it's knowing in part to knowing in full. Because of that, all of these things, one day they're going to come to an end. Your childhood comes to an end. You're looking at Christ through a mirror, comes to an end. Your knowing in part comes to an end. The only thing that's going to be left one day is the love that is shared between Christians. That is it. He says, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Church, one day the thing that will remain it's not the knowledge you've accumulated, the amount of money in your bank account, the amount of money you've given to your church. It's not going to be how well you're known. It's not going to be how many civic clubs you're a part of. It's not going to be any of that, how nice your car is, nothing. The only thing that's going to remain one day is the love that you have for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The question is this. In the new heavens and new earth, will there actually be anything left for you? 
If that's all that you're going to have taking in, will there actually be anything there for you, or will you be a beggar because you're missing the one thing that you should have, which is the love for other Christians made real in your good works and actions toward them? For the Christian this morning, I hope that as you walk away from this, you're considering the fact of whether or not, because Christ has showed you love, you understand it to where you can show love to other people. And if that's not the case, I hope that maybe you step back and reconsider and say, do I even know the love of Christ? If I can't show love to other people self-sacrificially, do I even know his love? I hope, though, that you're showing love to random individuals that you see every day. Love the people that you see out at Walmart who cut you off with their buggy or cut you off in the parking lot later, as much as you want to honk at them, and maybe sometimes I still do, that you show them love. And you say, you're good over my good. Even more so, I hope that you show it to the people who are part of Pleasant Gardens Baptist Church. I hope you do. Because it is easy to not want to. But here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, he doesn't say you're going to know, people will know that you're Christians by how nice you dress, or by how little you cuss, or whatever. He says, you will know that you're Christians by the love that you have for one another. Are you showing love to people in this church who are not like you, who are different than you? Because here's the thing, it is easy to love someone who does things the exact same way that you do, amen? And even then, it's kind of hard, right? But it's easy But the thing about the church is that God brings all these people together who are different and are screwed up in different ways and have have sin. We sin differently. And he brings us together. And we have to understand something, that Christ, he doesn't restrict the sacrifice on the cross to one certain kind of person. The only qualification is that you are a sinner that he has set his love on. That's it. But for so many of us, we look at someone and we say, you do things so differently than I do. How could I possibly show you love? Maybe we never said, we'd never say that out loud, right? Who would ever say that out loud? But our actions show it. You live in a different kind of house or a different neighborhood than I do. We never say it out loud, but our actions say, I don't know that I can love you and be self-sacrificial for you. You raise your kids differently than I do. You homeschool them or you public school them. I don't know if I can handle that. You like a different kind of music than I do. You dress differently than I do. You watch different television shows than I do. You spend your time and money on things that are different than I do. Whatever it is, and I'm really just skimming the surface, but I hope the Holy Spirit is is shining a light on those things in your heart. He's showing you, saying, hey, look, this is the thing where if people don't do whatever this is that I think that they should do, I don't know if I can actually love them. Believer, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, the question is how do we not show this kind of love to others? And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you're not a follower of Jesus, you think he's okay, you think he's a pretty nice guy, you thought he was a great teacher, but you've never submitted your life to him. You've never gone to him and said, Jesus, I need what, you, what only you have, which is salvation. Which is you taking my sin and the penalty for my sin so that I can have eternal life. If that's not you, I hope that you understand the love that God has for you. I hope that you understand that all these things that it says about him, that's his love towards you. 
that he is patient waiting on you to come to him, offering the gospel. He is patient. He is loving. He's not self-seeking. He's not irritable. He will not keep a record of wrongs. He finds no joy in your unrighteousness and your sinful living, but instead he rejoices in the truth. And he is bearing all things for you, and he bore all things for you so that you could come to him. And if that is you, I hope that you will come this morning. And you will put your faith in Christ. And you will understand the love that he has for you. And all that he gave to make it possible. Church, may we love the way Christ loves. Let's pray. Father, we need your help because we cannot do this on our own. God, you know that we can't. Father, because I know, not because of this church in particular, but just because of the fact that we are a bunch of sinners who are saved by grace put into this room this morning, we know that there's a lot of repentance that needs to happen because we have not loved. God, you even know the fact that there are some of us here today who have chosen or who have struggled to love and it's just, it's kind of, we've been so busy we've not been thinking about it. Father, you also know there's a number of us here today who we've just looked at someone and said, I'm not going to show you love. And Father, there may even be people here who are self-deceived and say, I'm showing love whenever the actions they take toward other people have no reflection in 1 Corinthians 13 or anywhere else in your word. Father, would you convict us? Would you lead us to repentance? Would you change our hearts so that we can be a church that the people in the community look at and say, we know that they are Christians by the love that they have for one another. It may not be because we're trying to work ourselves up into our own works righteousness to make ourselves right with you, but because instead you have saved us from our sin and you've showed us your love. Because you've loved us, may we love others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let us stand.